New technology. I'm, I'm used to the fancy little, it has one, one switch on it. Well, good morning. Um, my name is Jonathan Michelak. I'm a pastor over at First Baptist in Troy, and I did turn it on. Um, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 3. Hopefully, uh, I talked with Pastor Dan, Pastor Lee, what do you guys call him? Both, all of the above? Uh, and he said you guys have been, been working through a lot of Old Testament prophecy. Daniel is actually one of my favorite books. Um, chapter 7 in particular, which if, if you need the commercial, I'm, I'm happy to give it. But Daniel chapter 7 contains what I'm convinced is the grand central theme of the Bible. Like, why you start at creation, fall, law, all these rules, we finally get to church and all the letters, and there's a lot of preaching that we do from the New Testament. A lot of sermons, a lot of Bible studies, but there's a lot of material in the Old Testament that's absolutely fantastic. So hopefully, uh, this morning, and the next, we get done what, quarter till-ish? Ish. Um, my goal is to walk through a very familiar story, hopefully one that you know, and pick up some of the details to, to really understand what it is that Daniel's trying, trying to teach us. Like, why is this story here? Is it more than just a kid's Bible study? My contention is yes, but if you would, Daniel chapter 3, I'll start in verse 1 and read pretty much the whole chapter. So we'll take some breaks, just so that you can come up from air. Sometimes when people read a long passage, um, confession is good for the soul. Sometimes it's really easy to let the mind wander. So we'll come up for air a little bit. Daniel 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to the assemble to assemble, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the province to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the province were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that he had set up. And the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nation, and men of every language, that the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship immediately shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the people, nations of every language, fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Pause. What kind of image did he set up? Obviously, a gold one, golden one, yes. But a golden image of what? 
But it doesn't say that. What does the text tell us the image that he made? Because this is, this is one of, again, good confession. This is, I've always made that presumption. Of course he set up an image of himself. Everybody worship me. I mean, you know this book well enough to know that Nebuchadnezzar was an egomaniac. We're actually going to see some of that in this text. He was totally, totally self-absorbed. But do you, do you know what his name means? The name Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> you know, like somewhere, one of my Bible notes, I'm sure of it. Oh God, Nabu, preserve and defend my firstborn son. See, Nabu was an Akkadian god who was the son of Marduk. This is, you, know, you don't care about all the ancient Near Eastern nonsense religions. But this was, this was very, very important to them because very highly, like a lot of times in, in our games, um, we've got baseball players who are very superstitious. I mean, you, you talk to some of these players that just won the World Series, and, oh, yeah, I haven't washed my socks for three weeks, and I haven't done this, and they're the real... Same thing was true 3,000 years ago. Nebuchadnezzar, potentially, and again, we, we don't know this from inspired scripture, but understanding that mindset, it's probable that he actually set this image up of his god, his god Marduk. So everybody has to come, and everybody has to worship his god, because if he takes care of his God, then who does his God take care of? Him. More money, more power. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was a, a brilliant master genius builder. A uh, couple of chapters later when he says, is this not great Babylon that I have built? I mean, with all the archaeology going on in the Middle East, 75% of the structures that they found there, of the, like the bricks, they all have his stamp on the bricks. Like, he, he built everything and turned Babylon into a master powerhouse. That was verse 1. Okay, verse 1a. Where did he set this up? Do you know? 1b. Easy one. Plain of Dura. It just... The, the Dura in Acadia, just some kind of rampart, some kind of... It, there was some kind of geological feature some kind of hill, some kind of mound, something that he put this thing on top of. How tall was it? Yeah, so we're, st we're still in verse 1. We're making great progress. 90 feet tall. 9 feet wide? Like, it's just, this thing is, it, it's really skinny and really tall. Probably, again, they've, they've got some kind of base on this thing, just, I mean, for architectural stability, but you put the base, this, this statue, on this base, on this hill, everybody can see it. Like, it is just, it is sticking up in the middle of nowhere, and it becomes very, very obvious who is and is not bowing down and submitting to this. Just another freebie. In verses 2 through 7, um, both times he goes through the list of all the rulers and all the important people and all the judges and the magistrates and the satraps and boom, 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 all these people. Um, there was a, a man with the last name of Shea um, who in some of these ancient Babylonian texts, there's, there's a, a set of 50 rulers who are named. 
that he's convinced that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are in that list. So, like, top 50 in the nation, kind of. For us, it would kind of be like the Senate. Like, we've got 100 senators for our entire nation. To be a senator in the U.S., most people, it's, it's not just a job you kind of waltz into. Like, there's, there's a lot of, I mean, we're in the middle of political season. You're probably as sick of those text messages as I am. So he sets up this statue in the plain of Dura where everybody can see it, tells everybody they have to come and they have to worship. Verse 7, this is what happened. And then the inciting moment, verse 8. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans, and, and these are going to be like um, astrologers. These, these would have been guys who, who watched the stars, um, who turned that into a form of worship in predicting the future, and then helped them. Um, do you remember with Nebuchadnezzar's dream, those guys that came in and they tried interpreting the dream, and he was so sick, he's like, forget it. Not only do you have to interpret the dream, tell me what the dream is, and then interpret it. Yeah, these are the same guys that, that he's used to being manipulated by. So these guys come forward, and they bring charges against the Jews. Verse 9, they responded and said, O Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, the flute, the lyre, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadmach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They don't serve your God or worship your golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar calmly and in a perfectly even tone of voice called them in and summoned them before him. The Verse 13, and Nebuchadnezzar in rage and anger, his, his fury rage. He, this is more than just like, I'm hangry. He was, he was roaring at them, and he responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my God or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psalter, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, okay, very well. You know, if you do this, we're good. But if you don't, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? What just happened? Who did Nebuchadnezzar just dare? <laughs> the, the one and only God. I mean, you have faithful God-fearers. We can go all the way back to chapter 1. Do you remember what happened in chapter 1? They get you, all the Hebrews, all the, the smart, intelligent, young, eligible, they pull all these Jews out of Israel. You know, Jerusalem Falls 586. They haul all these guys off to Babylon. They set them all the king's food in front of these guys so they grow big and strong and healthy and smart and they're going to train these guys and they're going to have the best of the best. And what did these guys plus Daniel do in chapter 1? We, we can't eat this stuff. We, 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 just, we can't eat this. 
And the, <laughs> the poor steward gets caught in the middle. And he's like, guys, like, I'm just trying to do my job. Like, just, just, just help me out here. Like, I don't want to, if you don't eat this, I die. Like, I, I like my head where it is. I'd like to keep it there. And Daniel says, let's play, let's make a deal. Just, just try it. Let's see. And they do. And God blesses them for their faithfulness, for their obedience. They didn't bow down. They didn't cow to political pressure. They served the one true living God. Fast forward two chapters. Daniel is apparently out of town. Apparently he's on business. Business trip somewhere. Because he's not in the middle of this. We've got these guys who come. They don't. They get turned in. You know, these astrologers. We'll just call them the SS of the day. The informers. The Stasi. Gestapo. Like, pick, pick your country. Pick your informer. Like, that's what these guys are doing. And Nebuchadnezzar is convinced that they have to bow to this. He gives them a second chance. Why? Why would potentially the most powerful ruler of his day, potentially most powerful of all time, why would he give these guys another chance? Why not just off with their head the first time? It's possible that he valued them. Like, the, this is, if they're in the top 50 of government, does it help him and his influence to get rid of some of his brightest and best? Probably not. So it's, it's probably due to the, the credibility that they have gained that he's willing to give them a second chance. But you know how this story goes. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. What, what did they just say? Uh, if you've got the King James, it's, we are not careful to answer you. What, what does that mean? Yeah. They don't have to think about it. Do, <laughs> king, you don't really have to give us another chance. Because we've already thought through this. Our answer is not going to change. Like, it doesn't matter how many chances you give us. Our answer is going to remain unchanged. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery blazing furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. There you go. Verse 17. The core central truth of this, and what do we walk away with? Oftentimes when, at least, you know, maybe personal testimony, when I was in Sunday school, how this was preached, verse 17 becomes the grand central theme of this chapter. That our God can deliver us from whatever you can throw at us. But what does verse 18 say? But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we're not going to serve your God or worship the golden image that you have set up. Did these three guys have any assurance that they were going to be delivered from the fiery furnace? Did, so fast forward this 3,000 years, 2,500 years. Should we be surprised when we suffer, just like them, when we are persecuted for doing what's right? Should we have the same faith out of verse 17? Our God is able to deliver us. 
Absolutely. But should we falsely believe, how's that for tipping my hand, that God will deliver us every time? What about the martyrs out of the first century? Look at the martyrs here. Look at, we can look through history, and are there times where God supernaturally intervenes and protects his people? Yeah, verse 17, he can do this. But does he? Not always. We do not have the confidence that God has to deliver us. Just a quick aside. For disobeying the king in chapter 3, what punishment did Nebuchadnezzar set up right now? So if you disobeyed, what was going to happen to you? Go in the fire. Um, three, three chapters forward, what happens when Daniel disobeys? Remember Darius the Mede? And he says, worship, in this case, me. You can only pray to me or else. And Daniel disobeyed. What happened? Lion's dead. What changed? I mean, he's same guy, same city. What's the difference? <laughs> Go ahead. Well, in, in this case, if, if I can take that and flop it, the gods changed. So in the Chaldean world, who's, who is ruling right now in chapter 3? Nebuchadnezzar, serving Marduk in this case. Fast forward three chapters, and you've got Darius the Mede. Not Chaldean. Media became Media Persia, became Persian Empire. Guess what god they served? They served the fire god. Which to burn someone alive in fire would have been to desecrate, to blaspheme their god. They could no longer do this. So they had to come up with a different means of execution, and so they went lions. So they said, king, we don't have to think about this. We don't have to rethink, we don't have to reconsider. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is one of those phrases that I literally smirk at every time I read it. I've been through, I don't know how many times I've read through this book or through the Bible, and I smirk literally every time. Massive understatement. His facial expression was changed toward them. That's so nice and so polite. Can you just imagine this egomaniac has just been told no to his face in front of his court. Like, can you imagine how irate he was? If you need evidence of it, read the next verse. Or part B. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. I mean, we've got thermostats. We've got, you know, temperature settings and dials. Like, I can go to my grill and it's got all these numbers all the way around the dials. How do they know what seven times hotter is? It, it, it's, it's one of those Hebraisms where basically it's how hot can you get this thing? Put as much fuel in there, stack it as full as you can, and make this absolutely overwhelming, like just as hot as it can possibly go. So they tied these guys up. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in blazing fire or and cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and other clothes, and were cast in the middle of furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, 
because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire still tied up. Have you noticed how much repetition there is in this book? Like how many times have we had to spell out the orchestra? How many times have we had to spell out all the rulers? How many times have we had to describe what these guys are wearing? How, like a, the repetition in a single chapter. Hebrews, mm, they, they did not like writing more than they have to. Uh, one of the challenges of translating the Old Testament is they like to just randomly omit verbs. So man, boy, dog. Complete sentence in Hebrew. It is unintelligent if you pull it out of a context. You put it in a context and you realize, oh, a, a dad was taking his son for a walk with their dog. And you go, oh, man, boy, dog. I know what that means now. But in a chapter like this, with all of the repetition, it is there to underscore the point. I mean, the, Daniel is painting a very, very vivid picture for us. These guys are bound up in all of their very flammable things. They've, they've climbed up to some, or been carried up, I guess, um, to some height. A lot of times, the, the furnaces that they're in, they're, they're kilns. They're brick kilns, basically. So they're going to build these into the side of a cliff, because how well do hills insulate? I don't know if you have a basement at your house, but the basement's a pretty constant temperature. I mean, it's just, it kind of stays like it's that temperature. Dirt actually is a pretty good insulator. I mean, you go down four feet and it's like, we can hit permafrost. <laughs> Dirt insulates. So they build these kilns into the side of hills where you've got a hole on the bottom, hole on the top, and so you throw fuel in, you put the bricks in, you fire the bricks. Well, the side of the hill makes a great vantage point for them to just chuck guys over the, the side. And so that's what they did. They, they, these big, strong guys, biggest, strongest ones out of the army, pick them up, throw them over their shoulder, climb this hill, throw them in with all of their clothes. Did we mention the clothes? What clothes? How many clothes? What kind of clothes? Just in case you missed it, they were all wearing really flammable stuff. Daniel's trying to make sure you get that point. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste and said to his high officials, didn't we throw three guys into the midst of the fire? They replied, oh, certainly, O king. He said, I see four, walking around in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the furnace, the blazing fire, and he responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then they came out in the midst of the fire. Can you imagine that? Like, just put yourself in their shoes. Just walking around in the midst of a furnace, going, hey, this is pretty cool. <laughs> like, I mean, there's a number of years ago, um, I was on a mission trip in Chicago, and there's a little bit of mix-up. Um, we, we had a, a group of about 30 teens or so who were like running an evening vacation Bible school. We thought that the VBS started at 7, and it really started at 6. So on about 5.15, the pastor of the church that we're helping is like, so you guys getting ready? You know, you, we're, we're, we're ready to go at 6, right? 
um, we were going to eat dinner at 6. And he's like, oh, no. No, 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 no. We start at 6. So it was, how fast can we? We were having hamburgers that night. And so I was an intern on the trip, and the youth pastor looked at me and said, John, how fast can we have 45 hamburgers ready? So what do you do to the grill? You heat it seven times hot. How hot can we turn this thing up? And so there was a lot of hamburgers. And when you're cooking for a big group, you don't buy 90-10. You buy 80-20 hamburger. It's cheap. That's, a, that's an awful lot of grease. I'm like, can you guys see where this is going? What happens when you've got that many burgers producing that much grease and that kind of... I legit had flames this big coming off the grill. Somewhere, somewhere there's a picture of this. I don't have it, but somebody's got it. Guess how much hair I had on my hands by the end of that evening? <laughs> I had none. Zero. And yet these guys are walking around in a furnace. They're not singed. Their clothes aren't singed, and they don't even smell like smoke. Did they just get lucky and find the cold drafts walking through these inefficient furnaces? Like one of the things, I teach Bible at the high school uh, over there, and one of the things that just, I, I get students bringing things all the time and saying, well, this is what so-and-so said, and this is what so-and-so, you know the crazy theories people come up with out there to discredit the Bible? Like, at some level, this text is so specific. Like, it takes more faith to explain away what it actually says than to just believe what it says. In this case, he goes, Guys, was your God able to save you? They come, came out of the midst of the fire, verse 27. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. So Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own. Full stop. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar himself, the king, said those words just like that in that order? <laughs> Probably not. Pro when you get an egomaniac like this, and, and my justification for that, is look at what he does for the next three chapters. Does Nebuchadnezzar have this change of heart? Is he a little bit softened to these guys? Does he submit himself to the Most High God? Or two chapters later, does he walk out on his palisade and, is this not great Babylon that I have built? And he gets a vision. Look, time, times, and a half time, you're, you're going to go and you're going to camp out in the field. And your hair's going to grow long, and your nails are going to grow, and you're going to eat grass. He didn't learn. Therefore, here's his answer, verse 29. So, verse 28, I'm sorry. Jumping around too much. I get really excited. I like this story. It's really a lot of fun. Verse 28 is probably Daniel's commentary on the king's command, where the king realized what happened, and this is Daniel's full-throated embrace of the response of these guys. That it wasn't just a, 
Well, yeah, that's what they did and they got away with. But it was an absolute commendation that they not only did the right thing, but they did it the right way. And God protected them and honored them for it. Verse 29. Therefore, this is, again, Nebuchadnezzar, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, insomuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Why would the king say, don't blaspheme Yahweh? Yeah, it's, it's all about the self-preservation. Do you remember why he's, again, put it in context and in context of the rest of the book. Why had he set up this huge giant statue for that self-preservation? To take care of him, his financial interests, the interests of his kingdom. It's all about this protecting me. And now I've got a competing God who just basically blasphemed me and my God and was stronger. So we're going to you know, add your God to our pantheon and say, well, we don't want to make that God mad. Animism, um, that there's all of these spirits and these gods that are competing against each other, it's still a thing all over our globe. Like there's, there's even in the, the United States, it's, you know, a lot of times we don't do direct deities. But how many countries in this world are they still offering fruit and incense and sacrifices to all of their little household gods? And it's, it's, they have a huge... Well, Nebuchadnezzar's doing the same thing. He's adding this God. Well, I'll add your God to our pantheon because clearly he's powerful. My question for us, where do we go? Like, what do we walk away with from a story like this? Is it just a, a great story? Something we put in a historical context and say, wow, great job, guys. Be warmed and filled and go on our merry way. Or is there lessons... Are there things we learn about God, things we learn about us, that we should apply and live differently today? I know I set you up on this one because I did a lot of talking. I should have taken more breaks. <laughs> yes, okay, what? What is it? What are we supposed to learn from this? What are we supposed to walk away with? Serve God without regard for the consequences. What else? So when should we expect that? Until he says no. Is, is our responsibility... And, and, and uh, this is where it gets difficult. Should we be concerned with the outcomes, with the consequences? <laughs> well, God, since God is in control, he's, he knows what's going to happen. Can we change that? So if we can't change it, should we be concerned about it? 
Okay, now stop and just think about what we've just said. Do we actually believe that? Yeah, we're always concerned. Like we're always the 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 ten the tendency for us is to not just be concerned about the process but the outcome, and in some cases to flip that on its head, where we we become borderline manipulative with the process to achieve what we believe the greatest ends to be. There's a temptation sometimes for parents in raising kids that if I just follow this formula, my kids will turn out. There's with with loved ones, you know, I have this brother, sister, child, family member, parent, somebody who's not a believer. If I do all of these things, they'll be saved. If I do this, here's how the outcome is. Do we control the outcome? We need to be faithful. We do what we can. We do what God has entrusted to us. We obey what he has said. And then who do we leave the consequences to? To God. That God has all of this figured out. That there's, there's things that we, we get. There's, sometimes we understand and we're like, I know exactly how this is going to work. And other times we scratch our head and go, God... What are you doing? Like, how can you possibly fix this? God says, I've got this. Just, just watch. It's, it's always interesting for me. Uh, I had a trip, chance to go to the Grand Canyon a number of years ago and just, just stand at the precipice and see this vast, massive hole in the ground. I mean, because at the end of the day, it's, it's just a canyon, right? It's spectacularly beautiful. And yet, what is that? It's a reminder of God's judgment. That's for, for those of you creationists out there. It's, it is, this is the leftovers of God's wrath. And if God can make his wrath look that good, what about his promises? What about his blessings? Come all the way back to verse 28. Again, my, my contention is this is Daniel's commentary. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. How important is it to worship only one true living God. In our nice Sunday clothes, dressed up in a nice Sunday morning, sitting in our nice Sunday school, very important. And we all smile and we all say amen. And what happens when we walk out the door? What's the temptation? <laughs> and all of a sudden, man's world hits us full in the face. And it's so easy to be distracted from what's really important in life. What, what really should occupy our time and our attention and our affections and our loyalties. And we get busy. 
We do other things. Does the worship of God, is it restricted exclusively to Sunday mornings? And I think Sunday mornings are really important, and thank you for being here, even though your pastor's not here. But where does that carry over to? That carries over to this evening, tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow night, through the rest of the week, where day by day we look at the decisions that we're making in life. And the decisions we evaluate to say, is this making God's name great among the nations? Is this glorifying my God? Can people look at just the way I talk, the way I walk, who my God is? Or are we just the one in the many? Uh, a number of years ago, I, I worked at a, um, an Axel test lab. It took the guys about 45 minutes to figure out I was different. Wouldn't swear, wouldn't cuss, wouldn't engage in the, we'll just call it the naughtiness that was going on. Like, you, what's up? You're different. Like, well, I'm a Christian, and, and I mean, they, they cut me off. They went, oh, you're one of those. So I became the brunt of jokes for the next however many weeks. There was another guy who came in. I mean, it's, I, my Bible's a little bit, he had this big Bible. Like, big Bible coming, slaps it right on the counter. Like, he, he was going to make sure everybody knew he was Christian. And they're like, oh, yeah, you guys are, you guys are going to get along great. <laughs> we did not get along great. He would take his Bible out read it throughout the middle of the workday, was participating in a lot of the nonsense that was going on in the workplace. And again, my unsaved, unbelieving co-workers, it took them about a week, and one of the guys actually came and caught me, and he's like, John, what's the deal? Like, you both say you're Christians. You're, you're, you're not. Like, you're different. Like, what? You guys are very different. Like, are there different kinds of Christians? Or like, what's the deal? Because you guys are not the same. And for me, it was an opportunity to... I mean, it's, it sounds... It's, I, I have a love-hate relationship with this little story in my life, this little antidote. Because it sounds like, you know, me being this shining, upstanding Christian test. All I was trying to do was go to work and pay for college. Like, that's all I was trying to do. I, I was not some massive evangelist. I was not going full of Apostle Paul in the workplace. I was just being faithful to the best of my limited abilities. And yet, for those guys, to my knowledge, none of them made a profession of faith. But there was one guy that one time who I had the opportunity very briefly to sit there and say, let me tell you about my God. Let me tell you what he's done for me and why that's necessary. And I had about two and a half to three minutes to fly through the gospel with him. And he blew it off. He's like, yeah, whatever. And, you know, he walked away. But it's a seed, by God's grace, I hope in time somebody else will come and work at. And somebody else will come. And, and years from now, maybe by God's grace, I'll get to see him in heaven one day. I don't know. I am not responsible for the consequences. I'm responsible to be faithful and to be faithful in worshiping only the one true living God. I think for us, that's our takeaway from this story. That, that we do what we know to be right without regard for the consequences. We pray and we leave it to our sovereign God 
because he's got this. Will you pray with me? Lord, we're so grateful for your word, for what it teaches us. Lord, we're thankful for the mirror that it provides for us to look at and evaluate who we are and what we ought to be. Oh God, we ask for your grace that you would give us open and attentive ears as we listen to your word, as we read and digest, that we would be faithful in our various walks. Lord, we, we are many different places in life, stages in life, workforces and workplaces, families and the rest. God, give us grace to be faithful, that we would not make foolish decisions because we care about the consequences, but that we would do what is right because you've said so. We'll give you the glory for everything that you accomplish through us as feeble, feeble vessels. We pray it for the sake of Christ. Amen.